Let me ask you something. What is the role of language in medical education? How can medical education integrate insights from philosophy of language? And how can these insights help us to do things with words? My name is Mario Veen. My co-host today is Anne de la Croix. In this episode, we will discuss John Skelton's article, Language, Philosophy and Medical Education. The article appeared in the journal Teaching and Learning in Medicine as the fourth installment of the Philosophy in Medical Education series. Before I introduce John and Anna, I have some news about this series. Anna Cianciolo and myself have been working hard with six articles in print and many more coming. We're happy to announce that these articles will be part of an edited volume that will be published in 2022. The title of the book is Helping a Field See Itself, Envisioning a Philosophy of Medical Education. The book will contain all of the installments in this series and additional summarizing and integrative material that will explore how these different installments go together. And the publisher is Taylor and Francis. Now let me introduce John and Anne. John Skelton is Emeritus Professor of Clinical Communication at Birmingham University Medical School. John started out in Applied Linguistics, but since 1992, until his recent retirement, he has been working exclusively in academic medicine. John has authored many articles on clinical communication, medical education, medical humanities and applied linguistics. And he is the author of several books, for instance, Language and Clinical Communication, Despite Babylon. Anne Delacroix is my co-host today. She is Assistant Professor at the Faculty of Medicine at Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam. She is an educational researcher focusing on developing transformative learning. The question that drives her is, how can an educational context help stimulate the development of unmeasurables, such as empathy and reflection, in future healthcare professionals? Currently, Anne is involved in a project that aims to actively involve families of children with complex care needs in the medical curriculum. John, thank you very much for being willing to speak to us about your article about language, philosophy and medical education. Uh, great pleasure. <laughs> and Anne, uh, thank you for being willing to be my co-host. Um, could you speak a little bit first about your own uh, view on language in medical education and your relationship to John? Yes. Well, actually, I never thought I would have a career in medical education because I studied language, Dutch language and literature, and I ended up being a secondary school teacher, language teacher. I also organized a school theater um, and did some social skills training for, for students who, who needed it. Um, but then uh, uh, I wanted to move to the UK and I was looking for a job and that's where I found a fully funded PhD position that looked too good to be true. And the supervisor was John Skelton. Now, uh, I have always wondered what would have happened uh, in a parallel universe if I didn't make that step, because uh, actually I landed on my feet with John, who raised me in the world of medical education. And uh, it now makes a lot of sense to me that a language teacher finds a career in this field. Um, but by writing pieces like the one we are discussing today, it really feels to me um, that, that John 
can really find the right words to 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 legitimize my existence in this field. Um, so yeah, basically, John is the, the the one who raised me in this field, who introduced me to the field, and uh, whose views I uh, hold very highly. I don't know if that's the way to say it. I'm sure you'll correct me, John. <laughs> so I sometimes mess up my English. <laughs> um, yeah, so basically, uh, John was my PhD supervisor and uh, a great example. Ah, thank you very much. And I'm very glad you feel legitimized now. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and did you did you learn anything new, Anna, by reading the article that you didn't know already? Um, no, it's actually interesting because I started my PhD with John 15 years ago uh, in 2006. And um, I think at that time I was mainly um, getting into the teaching, getting my heads around doing a PhD. Um, and then when I left the UK and took my work forward in, in the Netherlands, I actually kept on coming back to some core beliefs. Um, that were very uh, skeletonish. How would you say that? Skeletonian, <laughs> skeletonian, maybe. Um, yes. So I, I do think now, 15 years after I started my PhD, I can really track back some of my more pieces where I have quite a, uh, an outspoken vision, like our zombie piece, Mario. I can really trace back the seeds from my time in Birmingham. Um, so I think when John writes pieces like this, I feel uh, it resonates with me and I can, yeah, it feels, and he does it in a very eloquent way, which I enjoy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, but I think it's, uh, before, before we started talking about that too much, I think it might be worth for people listening, uh, for me not to stop praising John and to get into the content. <laughs> so we... I was wondering, um, in the article, you basically say three things about language that for somebody who studied linguistics makes sense, uh, but for the field are quite different and possibly new. And I thought maybe you can explain them to the people that are listening. Uh, uh, the, the first one being language is about doing things with words. Yeah, uh, yes, this, uh, as I mentioned in the article, this is a speech act phrase, really, and it dates back to the early 60s with um, the original study by J.L. Austin, um, which reads beautifully, it's very formal and it's from another era, it's sort of um, real kind of 1950s English, uh, but it is beautifully written. Uh, the fundamental uh, point here, which Austin was beginning to develop. I mean, he sadly, he died very prematurely. So most of the implications of his work were, ta were taken up by other people. But what he really was getting at, I think, was that every time you speak, you're trying to do something. Uh, even if um, all you're trying to do is, um, you know, Say hi to somebody, be nice to somebody, as, as, I, as you've just been nice to me, Anna, and I tried not to look or sound too embarrassed. I mean, that, that kind of thing is doing something with words. What we're doing now with words is monitoring, both of us, no doubt, who the potential listeners are, what they might be aware of, what they might not be aware of, and we're doing the act of helping them to understand 
what our own ideas are, insofar mm -hmm. as we can manage to articulate them. And in particular, with professional communication, which has always been the center of my career, I think, within professional communication, you must always, for the good of the profession, for the good of the institution, for the good of, um, and I suppose ultimately for the good of your own career, if you want to be self-centered about it, you have to use words to achieve a purpose. If you're a doctor, use words for the purpose of helping the patient to get better. If you're a linguist like you and I, as you and I are, then you use words to help people to understand linguistics better and so on and so forth. One of the key things, and this is a point I make later in the paper, one of the key things that doctors on the whole are somewhat poor at is articulating their thoughts about non-scientific areas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I would like to help doctors to do with words is to make them more articulate about uh, themselves, not about their emotions. Everybody can do touchy-feely. I'm not very, I'm frankly not wildly interested in touchy-feeliness, as I may <laughs> have mentioned to you, Hannah. Um, I'm not wildly interested in that, but I really think it's important to help doctors to think clearly about non-scientific things and hence if you like the link in with philosophy in general because um uh, it's always seemed to me that the central point about philosophy is if it's not making your head hurt because you're thinking so hard you're doing it wrong mm -hmm. and i think i would like to challenge doctors thinking so that's the doing things with words for me uh, when it comes to doctors Mm -hmm. And can I just tap into that? Because that also requires uh, a certain tolerance of ambiguity. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's something that I think Mario and his series and with my work as well uh, is, yeah. is, is a struggle sometimes. To, uh, and I notice a big intolerance of ambiguity. Do, is that something that you recognize? And, and how do you deal with it? <laughs> well, I think it's an extremely good thing, thing that doctors are taught to be intolerant of ambiguity. <laughs> really do not want a doctor who says, well, it's a little bit this, it's a little bit that, it's a little bit, don't really know. I mean, it, it's not often a helpful thing to say to a patient. Um, the I, I'll, I'll tell a story which I'm quite certain I've told you, uh, Anna. Years ago, I had a surgeon uh, referred to come and see me because he was very brilliant, but he kept failing at job interviews. And I said, well, let's, let's do a mock job interview. You appreciate I'm not a surgeon, but I'll ask you, um, I'll ask you more general questions. And at that time, there had just been a new government paper produced or something. I said, what do you think of the new government paper? And he fell silent for about five seconds. So we'll do that and see what a long period of time it is. Good. <laughs> and that was it. And I said, I know why you're not successful in job interviews. 
But if you think about it, that's exactly what you want from your ideal surgeon. They think deeply, they come to a precise economical decision, and they follow it through positively and confidently. Mm. There has to be reductionism in medicine because you can't have the surgeon hovering over two parts of the anatomy with his scalpel. Mm. He has to know. I'm saying he because this, this was a man that I was talking about. He has to know where he's going to cut. He has to know that. The, um, so I'm all in favour of reductionism. The thing is recognising where reductionism doesn't work. Mm. where it's really impossible for it to work. I started my um, university life as a, as a literature student and I, I was taught uh, by a very brilliant man uh, called Philip Hobsbawm and he, um, uh, he, he mentored actually amongst other people he mentored Seamus Heaney, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And Heaney always spoke very highly of Hobsbawm, and, and he uh, mentored me. Not, you understand, that I'm Seamus Heaney or anything like as famous. Uh, but um, his view was always that the point about literature was cohering ambiguity. So there were a number of possibilities that a great poem, a great novel raised number of ways of reading it, number of ways of thinking about it, which were all different, but all pointed in the same general direction. Okay. And I think that a doctor must become comfortable. It's not so much failing to recognize it, uh, or even failing to tolerate it, it's they must be comfortable with recognising that there are things which you don't really know, but there are possibilities which are all from the same part of the universe and they all point roughly in the same direction. So is the illness caused by a clinical disease? Is it caused by uh, the psychological problems that precipitated or are consequent on the clinical disease? Are they, are they made worse or better by the social problems? The you know the patient's been out of work for the last three years. Is very worried about money. Has you know all of this kind of thing? These are ambiguities. These are, these are things that one must uh, be comfortable with. Uh, when when I've talked to Mario, uh, we had this masterclass in COVID times where we discussed philosophical work uh, with a group of well interdisciplinary medical education researchers, and we uh, we had the term aporia come up a few times, the acceptance of not knowing and the the sitting in uh, well the, the being in insecurity or ambiguity. Um, right, I I have about six million things to ask you, but I think. I'm going to go back to my original plan to ask you about the three pillars of language. Yeah. So the first one was doing things with words. The second one you, you mentioned in the piece is it is meaning in context. Could you explain or elaborate on that? Really the most basic insight in language is that 
context defines meaning completely. Mm. Um, every linguist I've ever met, every academic linguist I've ever met, has little stories to illustrate this. I once came home and said to my wife, strawberry, and she said, damn, okay? Yeah. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> oh, come along, Anna. Uh, as you immediately understand, the context is the only thing that could possibly give that meaning. Mm -hmm. And the context here is um, that I had said, I'm sure I've such and such a place this was when I was living abroad, so it was actually five miles to the supermarket. I'm sure I saw raspberry jam in such and such a place, and she said, oh, that'd be lovely, go and get some raspberry jam. Didn't have raspberry jam, and I came back with a jar of strawberry jam, which was disappointing. <laughs> and so the day continued. <laughs> a colleague of mine once um, got out of the car drove home got out of his car his wife opened the front door and said well and he turned on his heel got back into his car and drove off again context here his wife always would always say well when he got home meaning how were the children today because he always on his way home picked the children up from nursery and so the wife said, well, and he got back in his car and drove off because he'd forgotten to pick the children. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's meaning in context. Um, a lot of this is conveyed through intonation. You know, um, um, you're looking really well, Anna, for example, as opposed to you're looking really well, Anna, which I, I don't know what that might mean, but it means something different mm -hmm. it's not a nice thing necessarily for me to say let me reassure you you're looking really well <laughs> but there, there you are you're looking really well yes yes, yes looking really cool uh, the um and one of the difficulties with with clinical communication certainly is that for many many years and i suppose this is still a very popular way of doing it you have a list of things to say uh, which doctors may well repeat, uh, but they'll repeat them in, in, in the wrong way. What I've tried was one I got in our speech and drama class when I was at school. Um, two people, A and B. Hello. B. Hello. A. You're not. B. Yes, I am. Okay. And so our teacher said, do this and imagine situations, imagine doing this in different ways. So one is, for example, that that's a celebrity and a fan meeting. You're not. Yes, I am. And she signs the autograph kind of thing. Uh, the one that I particularly like, a mafia boss and somebody who owes money. So, hello, he hello. You're not. Yes. I am okay, and then shoots the, the the person or something. All of these are to do with context. Mm. I once uh, was at a, 
a tonsillectomy clinic essentially where the uh, consultant in charge uh, to every single patient more or less you know 10 15 patients i can't remember exactly said i think you'd be better off with hypothesis don't you yes as a way of getting yes. consent to a tonsillectomy and um I think we would now say this was a long time ago. This, I think we would now say, well, that's not actually getting consent, is how we might phrase it. But just the words give every appearance of asking mm. a question about mm. consent, but we know it isn't. Um, so context is all. Context is everything. Yeah, that's the example you use. Uh, you use in the paper. The, yeah, it's it's a very heavy nudge towards a yes. That question. Yes. Yeah, I just had that kind of conversation with the, the man repairing my telephone, saying some quite extreme things about COVID, and then with a "Don't you think so too?" kind of. Um, because I think that the, what yeah, he tried yeah. to do with words is share his viewpoints and come closer to me so we would be allies in this world in the fight against COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. so you feel the pressure to answer yes. <laughs> I think that's another yeah. uh, insight about language that in, in conversation analysis, it's called preference organization. Mm -hmm. So the way, uh, if I ask you, do you want strawberry or banana? The last choice is always the preferred one. So there's something about the structure of language, the way you phrase questions, that makes something more or less preferred. One famous study of this is by, I think it's Heritage and Robinson, a study about doctors ask patients if there are any additional things they want to speak about. Yeah, any and some. Yeah. yeah. So in group A, they ask, is there anything else you want to discuss? And in the other group, they ask, is there something else you want to discuss? Now, you would think that whether or not people say yes, patients say yes or no, depends on whether there's actually something else they want to discuss. But the study showed that overwhelmingly, if you ask something, they will say yes. If you ask anything, they will say no. So without getting too much into the technical details, I think it's a great point about just the way you phrase things is already, yeah, giving a certain context in which it's easier to say yes than it is to say no or mm. to do another action. It's easier. You, you can nudge people and uh, uh, they reckon in referenda by choosing the question such that your preferred option is yes, yes, mm. yes, board. Uh, you can nudge the data by a few percent, which is surprising, but it's said to be true. Mm. which is relevant mm. in the context, for instance, of shared decision-making. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to actually ask questions in a way and to use language in a way that the decision is actually shared. I was just wondering, because these things we're discussing now are also quite technical and could be interpreted as if we just know how language works, we can always say some instead of any, and some of our problems are solved. Uh, but that sounds very skilly, like I'm gonna teach you a certain behavior to get a certain output. And um, I remember very vividly, and I still support that too, that you are a bit, well, when it comes to communication, John, I seem to remember you having a strong uh, dislike to the word skills. Could you uh, tell us a bit more about that? It's kind of a 
linguist dislike of it, um, the distinction, the linguistic distinction is made uh, between one's ability to do the right thing, or rather say the right thing. So you know what the word for tree is, um, and you can use it successfully and all the rest of it. Uh, but on occasion, if you don't speak a great deal of English and you're tired and so on, your behaviour is not that. You lose the word tree. You can't remember it. You've really, it just goes out of your head. Uh, so competence is what you're capable of doing, ideally. And a skill is the, the, the behaviour that you actually do in real life. Um, that, this isn't the way the term is normally interpreted within medical education, I may say, but that's the bedrock of, of what my own thinking here is. Um, a skill is observable. You can see a skill, you can hear a skill, but that doesn't mean that having a list of skills, a list of things to say in language is good enough because just saying them tells you nothing about the ability, the competence, and extending this way beyond Chomsky now, uh, about the values of the person who is doing the behavior. Um, this is, uh, again, this is a quotation I use often, I use it in the article. Um, One may smile and smile and be a villain. Uh, you can behave in an appropriate way. You can do the skill of smiling. You can see a smile. But that doesn't alter the fact that you may be villainous. So what we've talked about so far is to do with the way that the words you actually use depend on the context. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, there, are, there is an issue in that sense that, that you may use words which would be right in another context, but not in this particular context. Mm -hmm. What we're turning to now seems to me to be very important indeed, which is the link between the language one actually uses and the values which underpin the language one uses. Um, I have always, just for example, I've always felt it's frustrating within medical education that we don't use big words. Uh, I mean, morally hefty words like duty. You know, mm. it, it's quite difficult, certainly in British society, for somebody to stand up and say, I believe that my duty lies in this direction. Therefore, mm. I will do the therefore I will do this thing. And um, one thing is, I think would be quite nice would be to get a the concept of duty, the concept of virtue, the concept of um, rightness, and so on, back into the back into professional conversation. Mm. I'm currently reading a book by Michael J. Hyde, uh, a philosopher and someone in communication ethics, and he talks about yeah. the ought. Yeah. The ought needs to go come back into communication ethics, and that that kind of uh, matches what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think in that sense, um, teaching communication, or, or perhaps I should say using simulation as a teaching methodology, if I put it more carefully like that, uh, using medical role play um, 
it isn't about it's only very it's only partly about giving people words to say mm. it's mostly about using a simulation as a dramatization and getting the participants to reflect on how their values came across and to get the audience if there is an audience to reflect on those things too um, and the teaching of communication skills of communication as a set of skills is something that probably needs to happen in year one and after a couple of uh, hours most people have got it most people understand that it is it's, it's to use open questions for example you say look this is an open question oh right yeah okay i've got that and most people have got that so we're we're already kind of making a bridge to another question i wanted to ask you because the article puts forward a uh, a vision of, of language in context, language and complexity and how to do things with words and how, um, yeah, can you tell us a bit more about how these thoughts and this vision has led you to, to lead your interactive studies unit and the clinical communication teaching? You're already highlighting it a bit, but what do you think is important in teaching and how do you use your, your vision on language? I think it's um, it's important to give people the basic tools. So, you know, in the UK, uh, typically a medical student is 18 years old when they start. So it's important to give them basic skills and communication at the age of 18. You know, um, ask open questions, greet your patient. Um, smile at them and that's that's about it really <laughs> well there are a few more things but that's about it that takes an hour or two it doesn't take more um they go and observe real doctors who are good at communication and they copy them and that's fine that's absolutely fine beyond that um it's important to get students to talk about what they've seen going back to the point i was making earlier Doctors are often not very articulate at talking about this kind of thing because it's nebulous, it's ambiguous, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have a clear solution. There isn't a single correct answer that you're trying to get to. Um, and it's important, therefore, to get them to talk about values and uh, their own attitudes to the profession. I, in, in, um, in a paper which uh, well which I've, which I've done versions of I do annual updates in this paper uh, I've done it several times uh, I talk about a hierarchy of questions and the the bottom level question is what happened what did you see happen what did you mm -hmm. say that purely descriptive thing and uh, you know you see skills that's what you see and hear skills and the top level question which you probably never ask in cold blood as it were is what's it like to be a doctor what is the life of a doctor having mm. spoken to this patient about this problem um, 
an obvious thing, right? but this is just a, a very, very obvious thing, the conversation would become more subtle. Um, the patient is dying, there's nothing you can do, but you can still tell them they're dying well, or you can tell them they're dying badly. Mm. How does that make you feel about being a doctor? Is that a goal that you're comfortable with? My patient will die, but I will make it as easy as possible for them. Are you prepared to spend your life doing that? Which, you know, in, in some uh, subspecialties, that's what you're going to be doing after all. Mm. And that sense of the medical student, the doctor being driven back into themselves to think through in words, to write down, what it is that they feel really matters. You've got company behind you. I do. <laughs> I was hoping you would ignore it so the listeners wouldn't notice there's a small child behind me. <laughs> but there is. He's being very good. He's being very quiet. But um, our interaction has given it away that he might join us now. <laughs> um, um, I remember an interaction with you and a medical student and there was a, an, an actor playing the patient, as there often were when I was in your team in Birmingham. Uh, and the students um, said, uh, yeah, when you asked, how did that go? What did you think? She said, I don't know. I feel this real uncomfortableness. <laughs> and I remember you saying, right. So where did the discomfort come from? Like giving her the word back. I don't know if you remember, but I really liked it because it, it kind of summed up her discomfort with the situation and her struggle to find the words for the discomfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad she acknowledged that she felt uncomfortable. I mean, that, that, that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, it is really hard though um, to help people to become more self-aware mm. unless you can get them into the habit of talking about that kind of thing. Um, every professional person should, I think, as they drive home, let's say they drive home, uh, paying due attention, of course, to the road and all the rest of it, Every professional person should be thinking about what has happened today. What have, what have I learned from today? Mm. God, that meeting didn't go well. Why? What could I have done to make that meeting better? Mm. You know, it's just a habit of reflecting in words, putting into words what has gone well, what has gone badly, and how you feel is uh, it's a gift that language gives us after all yeah this is kind of the third point in your paper as well that language um, uh, helps us capture complexity and that's basically what what we're discussing now uh, that yeah. words can help i really like that uh, how you just put it on a giving someone a word yeah <laughs> i think that's a big part of the work of a physician that of of course, besides the situations where you can do something practical, like prescribe something or recommend something, what do you do with people who are, for instance, like you say, dying or who try to make sense of a situation or 
who are in chronic pain, but also when you give a diagnosis, a lot of times you're giving someone a word mm -hmm. and this word, and they, just to make it very obvious, they can Google it and they can look it up and they ex can explain it to their families and they have something which is acknowledged. I, I like this way of thinking of, uh, you know, a large part of the medical profession is giving words, <laughs> exchanging words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah finding a balance between re uh, reducing this whole complex systems and sometimes I feel tired and sometimes I have this and this and this to say, well, there's actually a term for that, this and this. So you're reducing it. And on the other hand, you're using language to capture, uh, as you write, the world's complexity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she basically summed up philosophy. <laughs> philosophy has the same thing that sometimes it's so mind... So it breaks my mind to think about certain concepts and some issues. And then some in, a, in one clear moment, you suddenly got it, have it, you see it, and then you think it can't be this easy, and then you lose it again. <laughs> but this kind of uh, uh, balance between simple answers and helping you capture stuff and the huge complexity, there, it's an interesting dynamic between the two. Well, I have one reflective question for you john you write in your um, in your piece that you entered medical the field of medical education or is it a discipline uh at least well at least it's a field you entered the field of medical education in uh, uh 92 we are now in 2021 so 29 years of being in the field of medical education can you reflect a bit uh what have you learned from the field of medical education? What has it brought you? How's it changed? Any thoughts are welcome. Um, well, I think if, if I can begin by talking about I've learned from contact with other people in medical education. Mm -hmm. um, I've learned from professional contacts with doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals generally, that they have a seriousness about their profession, which is to do with dealing with dying and, and welfare and tragedy and so on. They have a serious about their professional life at their best, which most professions probably don't have. I mean, I'm very fond of linguists, but they, they tend not to have that sort of that kind of professional seriousness and that was great for me because I like to imagine I've always had that and I've felt at home with it. I think as far as the uh, discipline if you like of medical education is concerned I think within the UK it's moved away from uh, the sort of surface skills level when it comes to the areas I work in. It's moved away from that sort of checklist approach to um, observing, commenting, teaching about uh, communication and other uh, non-clinical areas. And it's moved towards a slowly towards a deeper understanding, which sometimes gets um, the label professionalism or professional behavior, which is a term I don't like very much because behavior is what one can see and do. Again, behavior is what one can measure. 
the other issue here, of course, is about the assessment of the kinds of qualities we're mm -hmm. talking about. You, you get professionalism, which is now much more widely talked about. Uh, you get medical humanities, which um, has always been really well talked about, but tends to be talked about at a, at a more profound level these days, perhaps, I, I'd like to imagine. Mm. And the barrier, the only barrier that I can see against promoting the kind of thing which perhaps the three of us, you and Mario and myself, would all like to see promoted is the demands of the curriculum. Because everybody who's ever worked at a medical school thinks their particular uh, bit of expertise is absolutely central to the success of the medical school. Mm -hmm. and of the profession. This is something I've never really understood because I think uh, medical students get far too much exposure to learning opportunities and far too little time to reflect on the learning opportunities. Mm. That's what I think. Right. I, I was just thinking the medical humanities uh, in, in your team, you uh, the team that you led that was responsible for a lot of the communication uh, teaching at Birmingham University. It was a very interdisciplinary team. There were very many people with a background as language teachers, but there was also um, a, a great team of simulated, well, actually role players. They were more than just simulated patients, uh, but there was a, a big group of actors always involved. Uh, there was a course in uh, drama and medicine, film and medicine, literature and medicine. Um, the, what do you feel that adds to the uh, to the lives of medical students and future doctors? I think it could add a great deal. The difficulty with all of the humanities and medicine courses that we did is that the students are self-selecting, and therefore mm. the students who self-select are predisposed to those areas anyway, or they think they are, and then um, in a few cases unfortunately what they seek to demonstrate during the, the uh, teaching sessions is that they are indeed unusually sensitive profound empathic people whereas mm -hmm. my, my view is that um, almost all medical students are sensitive and empathic they, they, mm. they really are they're, they're a very nice bunch of all and um if you're going to be teaching medical humanities, again, this is my view, you, you're not going to be trying to teach people to be empathic because on the whole they are. You're essentially trying to teach them a different way to think, a non-reductive way to think, a uh, way of understanding the world without no facts about it necessarily. That's, uh, but that, that too is a different subject. That, that's a subject that's very close to my heart the purposes of medical humanities, um, <clears throat> because I think they're misunderstood. I think people do sometimes misunderstand what medical, what medical humanities specifically is designed to do. Is there anything you feel like we haven't discussed that should be mentioned or uh, a message at the end of this podcast to our listeners? A message to listeners, I guess, would be, um, they are perfectly right to take this kind of thing seriously. And I would suggest that they have the confidence to 
take their views and their approaches forward as they are. Don't present them as not quite as good as science, say, which sometimes happens. Um, what we've been talking about today matters. It matters very much indeed. It makes a difference to patients. It also makes a difference to medical students and to doctors because it works well. It works well. They become more articulate, that's good. And they also, they will find, become more capable of enjoying their professional life. And if you enjoy your professional life, it's good for everybody, including you. Yeah, that's beautiful. I actually, that's one of the things I also remember from my time in Birmingham in your team, is to, when you're not a clinician and not an educational professional, but someone coming from linguistics or the humanities, uh, you tend to start conversations in the field by saying all the things you're not. And that's one of the things I learned from being in your team. Start with what you are. <laughs> I am yeah, someone yeah. with a background in, in humanities and in linguistics, and this is what I can bring. And this is the perspective yeah, that I offer. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's to tie it back to the paper that you wrote for the teaching and learning in medicine series, that is uh, what your paper does. It says, this is what I am and what I can offer. So yeah. for that, I thank you. Thank you very much, John. And thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we will discuss an installment that is already online. It's called Contending with our racial past in medical education, a Foucauldian perspective.